Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. This is episode 30, and I'm not entirely sure why um, I'm a little bit excited about that, but for some reason I am. Maybe it's because it's 30. It feels like a milestone. But here we are back, and we're here in 2019. And today, the first episode of the new year, I want to talk about the Bible. I cannot tell you how often I end up in conversation about the Bible with people who identify as Christians and those who don't. And so today, I want to talk about one aspect of conversations that I routinely have, and that being around the subject of interpretation. Uh, how do we understand what the Bible is saying? How do we understand what the Bible is supposedly meaning? And how do we get there? What's the process for that? And who knows? Uh, there may be future podcasts that continue to dive into the subject of the Bible. But for today, interpretation. And what many have done when it comes to interpretation is equated our way of interpreting the Bible with the Bible itself. For example, you, you may hear someone say, I've heard pastors say this so often, you know, don't argue with me. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Or, well, you know, God says it. I believe it. That settles it. And first off, if you do hear a pastor use those kind of words, um, I would suggest heading for the door because what it suggests is that they are not being intellectually honest. Um, and I'm not saying they're doing this with any certain motive. I'm just saying um, they don't see or they cannot see that they are not just telling you what the Bible says. They are telling you what they believe the Bible means, and they are telling you what they believe the Bible says. And just like everyone else, they are using interpretive methods to get there. So what do we do with this sort of thing? And that's what I want to explore today. I, I, I want to explore this idea of what methods are we using, and is it possible for us to be more honest about the methods that we're using? Now, I've often said with regard to my upbringing and my tribe of origin that I'm grateful for those who introduced me to the Bible at a young age. And I've also commented that today I'm more serious about the Bible than ever. And for many, uh, to hear me say that sounds curious. For my friends who trend more conservative, quite frankly, um, many of them have said very kindly, they don't actually believe me when I say that. They don't believe me when I say I'm taking the Bible more seriously than ever. And some of their skepticism or disbelief lies in the fact that I don't come to the Bible or read the Bible or interpret the Bible the way they do. So it seems to them that I'm not doing anything um, when it comes to taking the Bible seriously. That, yeah, there's certain ways I do, but definitely not, at least not as seriously as them. And then for my friends who trend more liberal, um, many have talked to, about being like feeling that they get caught off guard when they hear me talk about the Bible. Um, they're curious as to why I would speak this way about a collection of ancient books that they believe are factually inaccurate or primitive and backward, and especially in the discussions of, that, that the Bible has about social issues, um, or, or, or a book that champions patriarchy and misogyny and uh, other times is downright barbaric. It seems to them the most ludicrous thing I could do or say 
would be to take this collection of books seriously. And maybe you vibe more with my conservative friends or maybe more with my liberal friends or you're probably more likely somewhere on that broad continuum. Wherever you might be, I want us to spend time together today asking questions about the Bible. I want to observe some thoughts on how we might come to it, I want, how we might allow the Bible to be what it is and how we might rediscover it again and again and again. So together we might take some next steps toward a more helpful place. And so with that said, we're going to cover a lot of ground, hopefully in a reasonable amount of time. I, I want to talk first about how the tradition in which I was reared views the Bible. And, and then I want to make some observations about that. Maybe it would be better to say some critiques about that. And then reflect on a few different um, instructions within the Bible uh, ask about how the church has moved forward, and then conclude with a few thoughts on how we can approach the Bible and allow it to approach us in a way that can be helpful. So with that said, first off, what I was taught about the Bible. I grew up in a world that insisted, insisted we immerse ourselves in the Bible. The Bible contained the answers to everything. If someone was struggling, the response was, read the Bible. If a marriage was failing, the response was, you need to get in the word. On several occasions, I've witnessed, I actually had this recently happen to me. Someone would talk about a book they were reading and uh, someone would say, well, I don't read books. I only read the Bible. Not long ago, uh, someone came up to me after one of my teachings, uh, one of our Sunday gatherings and said, I appreciate what you said, but I disagree with most of it, which is admirable because it's rather honest. And she was very kind in the way she spoke. And as she spoke, she began telling me all the things she disagreed with about the teaching, which here's the funny side of it. It was almost everything I said. So when she said I enjoyed the teaching, but here's what I disagree with and then disagreed with the whole thing, I was kind of trying to figure out exactly what she enjoyed about the teaching, but I digress. In some of the questions she asked, I said to her, well, so-and-so wrote this, or this is from this place. And she finally said, yeah, I'm not interested in reading any of that. I only read the Bible. Her response speaks toward the world that I grew up in. I only read the Bible. That's all I need. One of the songs we used to sing as kids was the B-I-B-L-E, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, <laughs> Yes. Oh, my goodness. It was only the Bible all the time. And the way it was presented was that we had this gift given to us from God, the Bible. Many called it the Word of God. And it was believed that it contained all the instructions we need to live life in the way God wants. Now, this is incredibly important because the Bible is clear about what happens to people that do not live life the way God wants. They burn in eternal conscious torment for all eternity in the abyss of hell. And by the way, that would have been way more potent 
if there had been like a big echo behind me when I was saying that. Let's try that again. They burn an eternal conscious torment for all eternity in the abyss of hell. See, I told you. A little bit of echo there. That's way more terrifying, isn't it? Um, but obviously, this detail and the adamant way uh, that hell was spoken of led me to believe it's best if it is the book for me. It's best if I do jump in to find out all the things the Bible teaches me. We were taught to read the Bible in a very literal fashion. In other words, if it is in there, it happened just the way it says it happened, unless a particular passage is clearly intended by the writer as allegory or poetry or something of that sort. And if there was any seeming contradiction or conflict, any at all, the problem was with the reader, not the good book. And the really smart and learned people developed ways to help the masses transcend these seeming contradictions. There were individuals who would say, well, it appears as though this and this contradict or these are conflicting narratives. But if you understand, and they would go through all sorts of hermeneutic gymnastics and say, see, there is a harmony here. There's even a book uh, maybe several books out about the harmony of the Gospels, how to bring together the differing accounts that we read in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. The process that was taught was a particular inter interpretation. Someone, somewhere, through study, made a decision as to what a particular text meant, and they handed these things off to us. And one of the central tenets of this way of reading the Bible, this literal interpretation. Uh, Christian Smith calls it biblicism. It, it, one of the central tenets was to take the Bible at face value, meaning it's the plain reading of the text. So one of the fundamental questions is, is what this particular passage, passage is saying, is it clear? Because if it is clear, that's exactly what it means, period, full stop. I recall a conversation I had with someone uh, years ago, someone who reads the Bible this way, and it was right after, it was not long after I had returned from my first trip to Africa in 2003. Uh, in 2003, I traveled to South Africa and Mozambique as a videographer to document the work of an NGO, yes, Film and video was a part of my life back then and uh, something I still enjoy doing. But one of the benefits of going there as a videographer was how much I was able to observe. That was actually the idea. When I walked into a room or a building or a particular place, my job was to listen, look, observe the whole thing and find compelling things to capture on video. So I was intently curious and aware at a level that I normally wasn't about everything that was happening. And one Sunday, we attended a church service in Maputo, which is the capital of Mozambique. And I wanted to know what the pastor was saying. So I asked someone to translate for me as I was listening. And the sermon given that day was from the Gospel of Luke. And I had been out of seminary at that point less than a year, so I was fresh off learning all about the correct and definitely the incorrect ways to interpret the Bible. As I listened to what this preacher said, it was rich and compelling. And 
there was this way that he spoke about Jesus. Oh my goodness. It, it was this, it was as if they had spent years together hanging out that they knew one another really, really well. And one thing was clear. His interpretation was not literal. His interpretation was not the plain reading of the text. Still, it was stunning and compelling and clear. And every word he spoke was saturated with the compassion and the heart of God. And so I experienced this. I come back home and after returning, I'm in conversation with my friend about literal interpretation of the Bible. I shared with him of my experience in Mozambique. He listened for a while and he said, well, I think the Spirit can still work in a situation like that. In other words, I think the Spirit can work in spite of poor interpretation. He continued, he said, but my hope would be the pastor that you speak of would grow and learn the biblical process of interpretation. Now, keep in mind, this is an individual who loves the Bible dearly. There was nothing of arrogance uh, in their voice or heart, only sincerity. This hope that this individual would grow and learn the biblical process of interpretation. You see, for him, interpreting the Bible was an open and shut kind of thing. The Bible, in his mind, is clear. The Bible, in his mind, is filled with instructions and rules that we can live by and that we ought to live by. For him, the Bible is essentially an owner's manual. It is, as some have said, basic instructions before leaving earth. If you didn't catch that, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Uh, it's our one source of theology. It's the one source of truth about God, for the truth about ourselves, for the truth about the origins of the universe. It's all in there. In another conversation with someone who sees the Bible this way, it was actually after another sermon. And in the sermon, I said, the Bible is a source of revelation. Now, let me repeat that a little bit more slowly and with some emphasis. The Bible is a source of revelation. And when I concluded, the, the person deeply concerned came to me and corrected me saying, no, the Bible's not a source. It is the single source of revelation for the people of God. There was this idea that just saying it was a source and not the source was, was incorrect. There was a little bit of a threat there. Now, of course, there's all sorts of theology about the Bible to support this way of thinking and interpreting. Individuals who think this way would say that the Bible is verbally inspired, which means the actual words and the order of the actual words are directly from God. Not long ago, I had a conversation with someone about the way that Paul writes in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. If you look through 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and all those letters, those are all from Paul. And one of the things that's interesting about Paul, by the way, let me just give you the nerd alert, okay? This is nerdy, but hang with me. <laughs> one of the things that's interesting about Paul is there's a lot of times where he uses a word 
that doesn't exist anywhere else in the Bible. So there's one word in one letter that he uses one time. And there's even words that Paul uses that exist nowhere else in all existing Greek literature. And so in this conversation with somebody, they asked, they made a comment about one of Paul's verses or a verse in one of Paul's letters and a word that's there. And I said, well, that word is the only place in all of Greek literature uh, that it's used. And so some would say Paul made the word up. And basically it was Paul smashing two words together, like nervous sighted, you know, you're nervous and you're excited or like Benefer or all the, the uh, ways that we take a couple's name and we smash them together. It was this idea. He took two words and smashed them together and formed one word. And so I said to this person, yeah, Paul made this up. And the response was, there's no way Paul made that word up. That word was given to him because the Bible is inspired. And so when you have this level, this way of thinking about inspiration, the idea is, no, 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 no. It's all directly communicated from God. These people were just writing things down that were given to them. So that would be the first part. It's inspired. Uh, Another idea is that the Bible is inerrant, meaning everything is as it should be. Everything there is true. If you read it, it's true, period, end of story. Doesn't matter what science proves. Doesn't matter about differing historical resources that we have that would point to it and say, ah, not exactly. It does not matter. If there was a number, it was actually 2,374, period. It's inerrant. And then they would say it's infallible, meaning it would not lead people to err. It's trustworthy. They would talk about that the Bible is the final authority, um, that it's God's full communication to human beings and reflects perfectly the divine will about all the issues relevant to our lives here on earth, that the Bible is authoritative and some would say the final authority. Now, I could go on and on. There's a lot more to this, but you get the idea. The Bible is flawless, perfect, fully divine, which is to say it's not a product of human effort. And this clarity that comes with the Bible is what is is brilliant because we can read it, we can get the plain reading, we can get what God wants, it's directly from God, on and on it goes. But there was one question that I asked, uh, by the way, there was a lot of experiences that led me to ask this question, but there was one question I asked that really was the first time that I sounded out my skepticism about this whole thing. And it's really where the, the way I was reared, it was the first time I kind of gave voice to the fact that this was unraveling to me, that a lot of this didn't work. Here's the question. I was in a class in seminary. I was in a um, systematic theology class. And if you think to yourself, systematic theology, oh, that sounds so boring. You would be correct. (laughs) I'm in seminary, systematic theology, and we're talking about the Bible and going through some of the things I've just mentioned. And one of the things that this professor held to was called sola scriptura. This comes from the the Reformation. It means only the Bible, that like the best way to interpret the Bible is other parts of the Bible. All we need is the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. And so 
he's going through this theology and I raised my hand and I said, if we claim to hold only to the Bible or if we claim sola scriptura, then why is it that most of what we say we believe about the Bible and most of what you're telling us about the Bible is actually not in the Bible? Because while the Bible does mention inspiration, it actually says nothing of the process. And the word that we take to mean inspiration was written by Paul. And it's one of those words that's incredibly unclear and that people have said, yeah, I think he smashed two words together. And so it never says how God inspired this, if it was actually dictated, if it was word for word, whatever it is. It never claims most of what is claimed about it in the world that I grew up in. You see, the Bible never says, I am inerrant, or I am in. It doesn't say any of that. And moreover, a lot of the things that we claim to believe about the Bible come more out of our modern context than it does the ancient Near Eastern world in which it was written. You see, I asked the question, if we claim to hold only to the Bible, then why is it most of what we say we believe about the Bible is not actually in the Bible? I ask that questions because we have placed things on the Bible and said things about the Bible that the Bible never says of itself, which also includes how to interpret the Bible. And so this brings me to some observations or maybe some critiques or questions about what I was taught. First, it helps to remember the church has not always interpreted the Bible in the same way. It's not like 2,000 years ago, people were interpreting the Bible the way we interpret it now. And that's really important for us to remember because this idea of literal interpretation and the appealing to the plain reading of the text, that's not been the way the church has done it. And I point this out because I often hear the term, quote, biblical interpretation, biblical interpretation. And I would contend this is a really poor choice of words. And I say that because the Bible never gives instruction on how we are to interpret the Bible. Let me say that again. The Bible never gives instructions about how to interpret the Bible. The Bible never says, here are the rules for reading. It's not like there's a, a preface on, here's how you should read me, and then, like, you know, it's written by God or whatever. Like, there's no way, there's no instruction given. And that's evidenced by the fact that over the course of 2,000 years, the church has continued to evolve in the way it reads the Bible. The Bible never says, here's how to arrive at the one correct meaning of this passage. The Bible never says, here's the meaning of this Greek word, or here's the nuance of this Hebrew phrase. The Bible never says, here's how you should read me. Here's how you should interpret me. So to call it biblical is actually quite dangerous because it suggests that the Bible is the support. The Bible is your weight, your reference point on how to interpret this thing. But the Bible never gives us that. Now, in my experience, I've seen reasons and as to why people use the term biblical interpretation or go after the literal meaning. And some of those things, some of the reasons I want to talk about, I think one of the reasons we do this 
is because we have a goal in the world that I grew up in. There was a goal of wanting to be correct, of wanting to be right. And let me just say this. There is nowhere from the lips of Jesus that he demands people be correct. There's nowhere where God is saying, you better be right about this. He never asks us to be right. We are asked to be faithful. We are never asked to be correct, to be accurate, to be right. And if you think about your closest relationships, in the moments where your goal is to be right, those are the moments that are often the worst. I mean, think about it. If you say to your partner, like, I'm right, you're wrong. I'm right, I'm right. Those are called fights or arguments, right? But if your goal is to be faithful, to care, to pursue, to love, well, that's when things are good. We're invited to be faithful, not to be right and accurate. That is a product of modern thinking, not ancient Near Eastern thinking. And here's where this gets tricky. I know lots of people who read the Bible literally and appeal to a plain reading of the Bible. And yet, they disagree on multiple issues. So they have this biblical interpretation. They, they believe that they are correct because they have this biblical interpretation. They believe that they're correct because it's literal and a plain reading. But then they disagree with other people who, who approach the Bible the same way. So hang on a second. If the Bible is clear, and if we can appeal to the plain reading or what's obvious then how are people arriving at different conclusions? Who's biblical and who's unbiblical? Which plain reading is more plain than the reading that's not plain? You see, it begins to get confusing. And it's also helpful to remember, as I said earlier, that over thousands of years, the church has evolved in its way of reading the Bible. And the way the church has approached the Bible is often a reflection of her time and place in history. And I say this because we import so much of ourselves and our culture and our world and our presuppositions into the Bible. If you review a history of biblical interpretation, you will see that in every age and in every time frame, the way people approach the Bible is a reflection of the culture in which they lived. Now, that, that might sound threatening, that might sound confusing, that might sound disorienting, but this is what I love. What I love about that is that in every time and place, as people evolved in the way that they interpreted the Bible, what I love is that the Bible, in the midst of this reality, in the midst of this diversity, in the midst of what can feel almost confusing, was always faithful to meet people wherever they were. Because ultimately what mattered is not exactly the way they were interpreting the Bible. It was a historical, grammatical, literal, plain. What mattered is are they pursuing it? And when they pursue the Bible, there, there's something about this dynamic book that, was, that responded to them and was faithful to meet them where they are. Now, you might say, wait, wait, wait. But, I mean, there's interpretations that were wrong, correct? I mean, there were things that were, like, if we keep going down this rabbit hole that you're <laughs> leading, is that we can make the Bible say whatever we want. Of course you can. 
People have been doing that for thousands of years, too. We can make the Bible say whatever we want. The Bible has been used to propagate um, Nazism. The Bible has been used to, to further apartheid. The Bible's been used to segregate. The Bible's been used to subject women. The Bible, I mean, the, we, let's be honest. We, we make the Bible say whatever we want every day, okay? The question is, are we pursuing it in a faithful way? And I'll get to a way that we can begin reading that will hopefully alleviate a little bit of that. So with that said, let me give a second observation. The second observation is that the Bible is not an owner's manual. It is not clear on rules at all. If you want to, if you want it to be clear on rules, go find something else because it's just not. And it's even foggier on exactly what we are supposed to believe. There's one story in the book of Exodus where Moses says to God, what is your name? This is a pretty straight forward quiet. What's your name? If you walked up to me on the street and said, what's your name? I would say, my name is Michael. Moses, God, what's your name? And God's response is, ah, I will be what I will be. Or another way of translating that is, I am who I am, or I am what I will be, or I will be what I am. It, it, actually, just interpreting, just tra- sorry, not interpreting, just translating the Hebrew of God's response is a mystery. It's foggy. And yet we are looking for certainty when we come to this book <laughs> that if we're going to talk about like it's exact a handbook for what we should believe and should do, it's very unclear. I mean, think about Jesus. I mean, come on. Jesus tells stories. This is his main vehicle for teaching is telling stories. Stories, by the way, that even his disciples didn't seem to get because they're always like looking at each other like, what is he talking about? Coming to him later and saying, hey, what did that mean? And Jesus gives very little directive teaching. Actually, the most directive teaching Jesus gives is about wealth and about violence. And man, has the conservative church done really well at explaining that away. You see, that, we're not going to take it as literally because, I mean, Jesus can't actually mean turn the other cheek. Jesus can't actually mean put the sword in its place. Jesus can't actually mean sell everything so that you can give to the poor. So we'll explain that away. But Jesus, if you look at his body of teaching, it's not very clear. It's oftentimes metaphor, it's pictures, it's words, it's questions. When Jesus is asked a question directly, he rarely answers the question. As a matter of fact, there's only three times that Jesus responds directly to a question with an answer. And by the way, let me just say this as an aside. If you're a pastor and you're listening to this podcast, I want to point out that there's something about the role that we inhabit where people ask us questions. And we have been led to believe that our job is to answer the questions. What do you believe about, or what should I do about, here's the answer. Boom, go do that. If we want to be more like Jesus, we're going to have to listen more. We're going to have to look within ourselves. And we're going to have to learn how to help people first ask more helpful questions. And secondly, with guidance and love and care and compassion, we need to help them even begin asking questions about the answers they were given. This is what we see Jesus doing at all. 
And I point this out because if the Bible was written to teach us exactly what we should believe and to offer precise rules regarding our behavior, let's be honest and acknowledge the Bible does a lousy job. It it, it doesn't do well at all. And more than that, in the places where the Bible seems to be abundantly clear, I know so many of us that we ignore the commands that are there, we, or we contextualize the commands. We explain away all kinds of things so that they'll work for us. In 2017, we announced full inclusion for the LGBTQ community at Denver Community Church. There was one couple here who left after a few months, and they became quite critical and quite vocal in their criticism of us. What was interesting is that the, the wife of this couple, there was a man and a woman, took on a role as a pastor and eventually a church leader at the church that they went to. I happened into conversation with them at, at a future date and they, she shared with me what she was doing. And I said, the, how did you arrive at that conclusion that that's okay? Because the very letters that you are contextualizing so that you can be freed to serve as a woman in the church are the same exact letters that we addressed uh, in arriving at our conclusions. And without blinking, she said, no, completely different. And by the way, we all do this. Like we all explain things away, contextualize them, pit them in history, whatever else it is, so that we can ultimately kind of do what we want. I mean, let's look at something that the Bible is abundantly clear on. I'm talking about slavery. Now, imagine you and I were hanging out and we met up with my friend Gary. And I was like, Gary, what's up? And we sit down and order some drinks. And in conversation, he begins talking about why he supports slavery. And you're thinking to yourself, like, is there, a, is there a camera around? This has got to be some sort of joke. There's no way he supports slavery. But he starts arguing from a plain reading of the text. He points to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, the, the book that we call Ephesians. And he's saying, listen, the instruction Paul gives is clear. When he speaks to slave masters, he says, masters, be sure not to threaten your slaves because you know God who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. And he he points to the fact that if slavery was wrong, if slavery was an institution that we should actually oppose, wouldn't Paul have taken the opportunity in speaking to masters to say, hey, what you need to do is actually liberate your slaves because this is wrong. But but he doesn't. And, And You may be listening to Gary thinking, dude, you are missing the point. And just as you're about to oppose him, you realize this guy's not finished stating his point about slavery. And Gary keeps going. And he pointed out that slaves were commanded, clearly commanded. The plain reading shows this, that they are commanded to obey their master and remain in the system of slavery. And Gary then quotes these verses. From Ephesians, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. Obey your earthly masters with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. So now we're comparing slave owners to Jesus. 
and that you should obey them in the same way. Obey them, he continues, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve your slave masters wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. Again, another comparison. Not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Now, at this point, I think you, I hope you would lose your mind, right? But Gary could say to you, hang on a second. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Hang on a second. I'm just telling you that the Bible clearly gives instructions to slave masters and to slaves. And at no point does the Bible ever oppose slavery. It continues to give rules of how to treat slaves, but it never says the practice of slavery is wrong. And if you go to the Old Testament, you begin seeing God saying to the people of Israel, hey, here's the rules for you being slave owners. Not don't own slaves, just here's the rules. And as Gary is talking, you would be like, what the and I can't say that, it's a clean podcast, but you get my drift, WTF, right? And so here's the question. If the Bible is abundantly clear on these instructions, and if we work from a plain reading, then how can we say it is not okay for Gary to think this? Now, most would point to the fact that slavery was different back then and that there's context and if we understand the history or, or fine, but, but that's then appealing to historical evidence, not the Bible. You see where this is going? It, it starts to get, it breaks down pretty quickly. Beyond that, yeah, slavery was different, but it was still brutal and people were treated as less than human. In the, in the uh, ancient world, historians estimate as many as 80% of the Roman population were slaves or at least descended from slaves. There were so many slaves that Caesar Augustus passed a law about how many slaves could earn their freedom in a given year. And he did this because slavery was integral to the economy of the empire. They were the workforce of the empire, the economic engine of the empire of Rome. And so if there were too many freed slaves at one time, the economy would suffer. Profit over people is nothing new. Now, most laws protected the household, which was not just a family, but a small business, if you will, because the empire cared about the economy first. So imagine as best as you can that you were born to slaves and you have as much as an 80% chance of this being true. You were a slave, meaning you were a worker without any rights. You were property. And imagine you grew up in a household in a city like Colossae, uh, to which Paul wrote the letter Colossians. And a few households over, you see this other slave and you're thinking, ah, I, I think he or she is kind of cute. And, and there's a little budding romance in the slave. And then over time, you finally meet and you go for a walk, whatever it is. And, and then you get married. What's interesting is you could say you were married but your marriage was not recognized officially by Roman law. And at any time, if your slave owner wanted to sell you to some caravan that was coming through and break up your family, your slave owner could do that. You had no rights. You were a worker without rights. You, you were property. And by the way, if you were a really privileged slave, you could have been an architect, a physician, a writer, a teacher, a lawyer, administrator, but you were that all without rights. 
Now, there were other slaves that were just like cattle. And these were the barbarian hordes, as the Romans called them, slaves primarily from the West and the North. And they, these were individuals who were forcibly kidnapped and forced into labor, oftentimes farming or agrarian labor. And they were relegated into something called an ergastulum, which had very low ceilings, so you couldn't stand upright. It was a way of like securing slaves. You were often at night chained into the ergastulum. There was a dirt floor, oftentimes very small windows. And when you came out in the morning, you were chained together. This is actually the origins of chain gangs. Aristotle referred to these slaves as human tools. So you could say, well, it was different back then. Okay, does that sound like something that we would be okay with today? Does that sound like if, if that system existed today, would we want a biblical writer like Paul to give the same instruction today? Because after all, that's what Gary's doing. And you're saying it's not okay. See, Paul, as a biblical writer, is accepting this as normal. He passes no judgment on it. He doesn't call it evil. He doesn't call it bad. Zero commentary on the practice other than obey and treat your slaves well. And, and by the way, it's not only absent here with Paul, it's absent, as I said earlier, in the entire Bible. And the Bible, very easily, in a brief reading, even in a little deeper reading, seems to condone slavery. And church history, by the way, reflects this biblical omission. Few people opposed slavery early on. And those who opposed were not the dominant voices. As a matter of fact, it's only been in about the last two to 300 years, depending on how you date it, that the church has been vocal in the majority for the abolition of slavery. And most recently in church history, we have people like Joseph Wilson, who said, I am sure that you will bear with me while I take another step in this great argument and show how completely the Bible brings human slavery underneath the sanction of divine authority. Or Ebenezer W. Warren, who said, slavery forms a vital element of the divine revelation to man. It is necessary for ministers of the gospel to teach slavery from the pulpit as it was taught by the holy men of old who spoke as moved by the Holy Spirit. Christianity and slavery are from heaven, both our blessings to humanity, both are to be perpetuated to the end of time. Or the Reverend Fred A. Ross, who said, slavery is of God and should continue for the good of the slave, the good of the master, and the good of the whole American family. And then you have the Southern Baptist Church, which affirms slavery. As a matter of fact, the roots of the Southern Baptist Church are connected to the rights of slave owners. And by the time that they finally officially dropped the affirmation of slavery, it still took them 132 years to apologize. And to save you from researching and doing math, they basically, they, they apologized in 1995 officially. And this thinking that we see from people like Joseph Wilson and Ebenezer Warren and Fred Ross, who, by the way, were not these fringe lunatic pastors, but very central to theology in the 19th century, this is the same kind of thinking that was used to support apartheid. It, white preachers in the 1950s and 60s and 70s used this kind of thinking to oppose civil rights and argue for segregation. And they, it's all from the Bible, and it's all the plain reading, and it's clear. The instructions are right in front of us. 
Now, I raise this observation because at one level, hopefully at multiple levels, uh, we agree slavery violates the ethic found in Scripture. But at another level, if we take a plain reading, the literal reading of the Bible, it's actually really, really hard to argue against slavery, which ultimately gets down to how we interpret, how we read the Bible, doesn't it? Because I know many people today who appeal to a literal translation, many people today who appeal to a plain reading who would oppose slavery with every fiber of their being. But here's the deal. They can't do so based on how they interpret the Bible without there being some sort of conflict. Do you see the trouble here? So if one disagrees with slavery, yet holds to a literal reading and interpretation of the Bible, the question is, how did you come to your conviction? Remembering that those early on who opposed slavery, they were considered by the establishment as dangerous. They were considered unbiblical. They were considered heretics because it's clear they were going against the Bible. And by the way, this still happens. If you ever say anything that's not the accepted collective thinking, people will throw rocks at you. There was one individual within the Southern Baptist Church, one of their big leaders, who pointed out that it was the theological liberals who began raising questions about slavery from the Bible. And he then said, isn't it a shame it took liberals to wake us up to the heart of God? And I thought, no, what's a shame (laughs) is that you're so convinced you're right that you couldn't get there yourselves. Don't look at someone who's helped you that believes differently and say it's a shame they did it. Look at your own self. Maybe that would be more helpful. So with all of that said, I told you this was a lot of ground. A few thoughts on the Bible, us and how we might read it. See, how we approach the Bible is important because as I said earlier, we can make what we want of it. We can make it an owner's manual for life, for example. In this case, then, we must remember the problem isn't the Bible. The problem is how we foist our expectations and ideas and thoughts onto and into the Bible, thoughts and ideas and expectations that aren't there. Peter Enns observes that if we try and make the Bible an owner's manual with a handy index, by the way, side note, there are topical Bibles out there. There's like the marriage Bible, the parenting Bible, whatever. It's unbelievable the amount of Bibles out there. So if you want to make the Bible an owner's manual or a topical Bible with a handy index, uh, Peter N says that if we try to make, try and do this, or an easy to read list of clear propositional theological statements, or an answer book for all of life's deep and enduring questions, we will find conflict and we will find conflict. We will find contradiction because this is not what the Bible is. It's possible the Bible is more like, according to Peter Enns, a land that we come to know by hiking around inside of it, by walking back and forth within it, by exploring its many paths and its uneven terrain, a place that is inviting and inspiring and confusing and contradictory and light and dark and comforting and troubling and unfamiliar and familiar and odd and even at some points unsettling. A land, we might say, that is very much like human life. Yes, like our life here. And this understanding of seeing the Bible as something to be explored has led me to be more serious about the Bible 
than ever because I am finding myself more and more invited into its conversation, invited to walk around within its landscape. And I'm learning more about the Bible and seeing it more for what it is, an ancient Near Eastern story of God and humanity, that it is a part of a conversation that has endured for thousands and thousands of years among the people of God. And it's arrogant to stand on top of the Bible and pretend we somehow have the final word. You don't have the final word. I don't have the final word. The preacher who says, you're not, don't argue with me. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That person does not have the final word. None of us do. And anytime someone acts as though they have the meaning and the final word, run to the door and get out of there. I would, I would suggest we can learn a thing or two from our Jewish friends. If you ever have read rabbinical writings, you'll come to a passage in the Bible and there will be 38 different interpretations of what this word, this story, this passage, this verse, what it means. And they're all there. They, they, they keep all of them together. Now, by contrast, Christian commentaries, if you ever go to them, many of them will have an individual say, this is the meaning of the verse. And in the past, so-and-so and this person and that person and another so-and-so have argued that this word or this verse or this story or this passage means this. Here's why they're wrong. Here's why I'm right. And here's my supporting verses and other things. And so there's this sense of here's the meaning. In the Jewish world, it's, oh, there's so much great conversation happening here. Look at all of these interactions with this verse. And you know what? Interact with the interactions. Participate in the conversation. And who knows? Maybe, maybe you'll actually add to it. And I say, I think we can move or learn something from our Jewish friends because there's an invitation into this ongoing conversation. It's a conversation that moves ever deeper into the text and into our hearts and into our world. And this, this kind of approach has the power to open us up because we can approach the Bible in ways that close down conversation, which has often been the case. Or we can approach the Bible in a way that opens conversation up. Believing the Bible invites us to interact with it, with one another, and with conversation that people have had with it for thousands of years, that we are invited to speak as we reflect on the words that it has. So what exactly would this look like? Like, how would we even begin to do this? And those are great questions. So let me share just a few thoughts that I think hopefully may prove helpful for us as we take our next steps with this beautiful, compelling, mysterious book. And I wanna talk first about stepping back, talk about flesh and bone, talk about being pulled forward, and talk about being together. So first, stepping back. I say this as a way of taking a step back and seeing the broader narrative. Think about like backing up and seeing a bigger, bigger picture than just looking right at a tree, for example, but taking a step back and looking at the forest. And I talk about the broader narrative because if the Bible is a rule book, then it's just the rule right in front of you. It closes you down. What should I do about this? You should do, there's one rule, boom, go ahead and do that. One can conclude slavery is divinely ordained. But the abolitionist took a big step back 
to see the larger biblical narrative, and they ask, what does the whole of the Bible say about the heart of God? What does the what is the biblical narrative in the direction of it? What does it say about a God of justice, equality, and liberation? How do we understand these verses in that larger context? Rather than just taking one verse or one rule or one word, or what is the larger, what is the larger context? How do I take a step back and see the bigger story? And how are these verses, these stories, how are they congealing and connecting to that larger narrative. So that's first, stepping back. Second, flesh and bone. Keep the Bible in its proper place. The Bible doesn't invite us to look at it. It invites us to look through it. The Bible is a witness. See, Christianity has long held the ultimate revelation was Jesus. And that, as Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, not the Bible. That, That Jesus is actually the word of God, not the Bible. And and I think if we really look at some of what Jesus does and how he seems to play a little bit fast and loose with the Old Testament, in a way that if someone came in and played as fast and loose as he is, we might throw him out. Uh, What we need to remember is that the word was written and then it becomes a lived expression in Jesus. And we ultimately are invited to become this lived expression expression. It's about the flesh and bone reality. I'll also say this. If our theology that we take from the Bible, when lived out, doesn't look like Jesus, it's probably poor theology. I had a friend who I was in conversation with years ago regarding the LGBTQ community. And at one point, he looked at me and said, whoa, 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 wait. Are you like are you for same-sex marriage? Are you are you affirming of the LGBTQ community? And I said, yeah. And he said, so you've just thrown the Bible away. And I said, no, actually, what I realized is that when I lived out my theology, it didn't look very much like Jesus. And if that's the case, I needed to revisit the way that I was living and the, the viewpoints that I was holding. And I've just asked people, like, who, who would Jesus exclude? Like, who's one person that we see Jesus refuse in, in the text? It, it, you can make the argument, if it's anyone, it's the religious who excluded. But Jesus didn't even exclude them. That's the real stickler about Jesus for me. But, but again, it's flesh and bone reality. that If the way we're reading the Bible doesn't cause us to look more like Jesus, we're probably reading it the wrong way. So stepping back, flesh and bone, then third, pulled forward. We see in the text and in our world that God is pulling humanity forward into God's self. And humanity is always invited to take our next step, never believing we've nailed it. And there's all kinds of um, words, writings about this way of viewing the Bible. Uh, John Howard Yoder calls it directional. William Webb refers to it as a redemptive hermeneutic. Theodore Parker who talks about the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. There's this idea that we see a movement in the Bible. We see a movement in our world where we are being invited forward together, to move forward together. Meaning that when someone says, well, the church has always, or we've always done it this way, those are poor arguments. Because what we see throughout the Bible, 
from the opening words to the final words is a movement forward of God inviting humanity to move forward toward greater equality, greater love, higher levels of consciousness, this evolution, this movement in which God is leading us. And then fourth, and this might be the most important part, is being together. The Bible is meant to be read with others, to engage other perspectives, to listen, to consider what others are saying, to debate, to agree, to disagree, to work out meanings because there's always more than one meaning. And by the way, literal meaning is often the lowest level of meaning. You see, the Bible is meant to be read together. That many of the, uh, of the pronouns, the second person pronouns in the Bible, the yous, are almost always plural, especially in the Christian scriptures of the New Testament. We're meant to be together in this. It's interesting, the Jewish community says the greatest threat to the community is hypocrisy, not heresy. And they observe that it's hypocrisy, not heresy, because they study the text together. And they say heresy oftentimes comes out of one person rather than a group of people reading together. So heresy isn't our greatest threat. Think about the evangelical church. There's heresy hunters everywhere. Why? Because we've been taught to study the Bible as individuals. What would it look like to come together and begin hashing through some of these really difficult passages, some of these more beautiful and inspiring passages? What would it look like to come together around the Psalms of Lament and really begin asking ourselves, what does this mean to be with one another and to listen and to debate and agree, to understand as we do this, all of us, we bring so much more together than we do alone. And we're all bringing in our experiences and our culture and our communities of reference and our church backgrounds and everything else. And in doing so, discovering the depth and the beauty of the Bible. You see, for so many of us, the Bible has become a book that's just bizarre, so bizarre that we won't pick it up. I hear so many people say, well, I don't know how to know what it means. But maybe... Maybe after this podcast, maybe your next step is simply doing this. Maybe it's picking up the Bible and beginning to read the Bible. Some of you might be like, well, where do I begin? Re- where do I even begin reading the Bible? Well, just start in Genesis. <laughs> I mean, that's where it begins. So I guess that would work. Uh, but, but begin reading it, not with the goal of understanding or not with the goal of being right. I mean, think about like, if you uh, read a novel, for example, you're not sitting there going, what's the meaning of this? You're enjoying it. Just pick it up, start reading it, not with the goal of being right or understanding or having the right viewpoint, but, but reading it just to explore its terrain. Reading it as a way of walking through its landscape, to poke around a bit, to find the human story within and participate in the ongoing conversation. Maybe your next step is to call some friends of yours. Those who maybe actually think that the Bible is just a crock of you-know-what. And maybe it's sitting together saying, hey, let's just let's start reading this thing and getting together. Like, make a book club about the Bible and begin to reflect where are you finding yourself and where is it finding you? And in doing so, you might find that you are now a part of the story and a part of the ongoing conversation that's 
thousands of years old that humanity has been having with one another and with God. And in doing this, it's possible you might just learn there is something dynamic and mysterious and divine in something that is so far beyond us within this collection of books that we call the Bible. And that, my friends, that is it for today. On the next podcast, our guest will talk about uh, the division that we're experiencing in our country. He'll reflect on how we got here, what is currently happening, and how we can move beyond it. That will come out January 29th, and I cannot wait to be with you on that episode. But until then, as always, much love and peace be with you.